1: Hello, and welcome to Money Talks on Economist Radio. I'm Rachna Schaanbog, the Economist's European Economics Correspondent, and coming up on today's show What can digital companies learn from the oil industry?
0: When data is mishandled and uh, when it leaks, for example, via cybercrime, data breaches, that sort of thing, uh, it's quite similar to an oil
2: spill. And what's the secret to online retailer Boohoo's success? They use over 8,000 influencers from the celebrity level with millions of followers right down to micro-influencers that they don't actually pay to post. They just give them things to wear.
1: First, concerns about the possibility of a recession in America have been rising. On Monday, Bank of America Merrill Lynch economists placed the odds of a recession at a one in three chance in the next 12 months. And in the last few days, Goldman Sachs and Morgan Stanley have both warned about the effect that President Trump's trade war with China is having on the US economy, as bond yields tumble and the stock market slumps. How exactly are these concerns affecting markets across the world? Samaya Keynes is The Economist's US economics and trade editor. She has been examining what all of this might mean for trade. So, Samia, tell us where we are in the trade war. Well, this is a fairly fast-moving story.
3: On August 8th, President Donald Trump announced that from September 1st, there would be a 10% tariff on around $300 billion worth of Chinese imports. That's, that's a lot of imports. Um, and then... This morning, the Trump administration announced that actually some of those tariffs would be delayed. So now there are going to be two batches of tariffs. There'll be one that hits on September 1st, and there'll be a second that includes things like video games, toys, laptops, and so on. That will go in on December the 15th. So obviously that delay gives the Trump administration time to change its mind. It gives negotiators some time to maybe do a deal. It also means the impact on the American consumer is probably lower. By delaying the tariff, basically what the Trump administration has done is basically given companies more time to get in stuff ahead of the holiday season. So normally the third quarter of the year would be the busiest time in terms of getting stuff on the shelves for Thanksgiving, for Christmas. So now they can they can do that without being hit by these tariffs on September 1st.
1: And Sumea, what's the overall impact of the trade war on the American economy?
3: The mechanical effect of these tariffs just isn't actually that big, particularly when you you put them in the context of the American economy. Yes, there are going to be hundreds of billions of dollars affected by these tariffs, but you know the, the U.S. economy is twenty trillion dollars, so it's uh, small relative to that. That's not to say though that people aren't worried about the impact on on the American economy so the mechanical effects might be small but but recently economists have been worrying about much sort of fuzzier effects of the trade war so they've been concerned that maybe all this trade tension or this uncertainty could be making businesses gloomy could be encouraging them to hold off on investment that could lead to some sort of downward spiral where businesses stop investing, maybe they stop hiring, and that could lead consumers to become less confident. They start spending less and you you get this kind of nasty downward spiral and then you get a recession.
1: Would you expect spillovers to other countries in the world as well?
3: Yeah, definitely. Uh, American demand is still one of the big drivers of the global economy. If these tariffs reduce American demand from the rest of the world, then that will spill over. You're already seeing struggles in in places like uh, Europe. You're seeing some slowdown in Asia. Manufacturing was already not doing particularly well before these tariffs came along. So they're definitely not going to help uh, with this generalized slowdown that we see. And some of that could come back and hit the American economy if those other countries aren't doing so well then there could be ramifications and, and spillovers back towards the US. That's certainly something that the Federal Reserve is is very worried about right
1: now. Coming back to America, do you think the trade war could spark a recession?
3: If you look at the recession indicators out there, then some of them are flashing
1: red. So
3: the way that investors are currently pricing bond yields has historically been associated with a, with a very high probability of recession in the, in the next year or so. And so that is generating concerns that maybe the US is on a, on a kind of tipping point. Now, people will say that there have been such significant changes in the bond market that, that these prices aren't such a powerful indicator of whether a recession is, is coming. In the past, they've kind of always claimed that something was different and then it wasn't. So take everything with a pinch of salt. But I think from where I see it, we're not quite there yet, Investment did fall, not non residential business investment did fall in the second quarter of this year. Manufacturing in the US is not having a great time. But essentially, the underlying health of the economy just isn't that bad right now. There is a chance that business sentiment could get much, much worse. I, I wonder whether this recent delay in the tariffs will actually give them a little bit of a boost. So I think although it's it's possible that, that things could go downhill, I, I just don't think we're quite there yet. So Maya, is there anything you can say about how you think the trade war might evolve? I think this is really the thing that people need to be looking out for. Obviously, we've already seen the trade war spread far beyond tariffs. The, the Trump administration put restrictions on, on American companies doing business with Huawei. There was a temporary lift of those restrictions, but the Trump administration may not renew that from August nineteenth, So that'll be another important date to look out for. Obviously, we saw the, the Treasury name China a currency manipulator. So there's every financial analyst and their brother is currently putting out notes about how a currency war might play out. And obviously, there's much more scope for the Chinese to retaliate against US companies. It could give them a much tougher time in China. So I think those are my primary concerns right now,
1: uh, beyond the tariffs. Sumeya, thank you very much. Thank you very much. And you can read more about this in the upcoming edition of The Economist. And why not try a subscription? Go to economist.com slash radio offer for 12 issues for $12 or £12. Next, in a digital age, data is becoming an increasingly valuable asset to companies. But that means it comes with increasing risks. The latest company to face problems of leaks is Capital One, an American bank, which in July revealed that a hacker had stolen the personal and financial details of 106 million credit card customers and applicants. So what can companies do to try and stop leaks from happening? The answer might be found in an unlikely place. Studying how oil companies have dealt with oil spills. Henry Trix is the Schumpeter columnist for The Economist, and he's been looking at the lessons that can be learned. Hello, Henry. Hi, Rachana. People have compared data to oil. What are the parallels?
0: At first glance, they would seem completely different. One of them is uh, is gooey, sticky, and make things run. And the other one is um, amorphous and very virtual data. But as data has become an increasingly important part of our lives, of business, of the economy, people have basically baptised it as the new oil. It's the raw material, if you like, that powers much of the world these days. Um, Its value is even greater than the oil industry was at its height. And when data is mishandled, And uh, when it leaks, for example, via cybercrime, data breaches, that sort of thing, uh, it's quite similar to an oil spill.
1: Oil spills cause huge devastation, environmental damage and can cost billions of dollars to clean up. Can data breaches really be as bad as that?
0: Yes. I mean, not in terms of physical loss of life or physical damage um, as you get with a terrible oil spill, um, such as the BP Deepwater Horizon spill or whatever. But in terms of the sp- bread and potential devastation. It's huge. You have some uh, data breaches that are caused by acts of war, acts of terrorism. One, for example, um, out of Ukraine in recent years, the NotPetya attack, which infected many companies, for some of those companies, it almost became terminal. They, they nearly collapsed as a result of those breaches. And of course, if we ever got to the stage where a power system or emergency services, hospitals were affected by a data breach, then of course, it could be very life threatening.
1: Let's talk about companies a little bit more. They're meant to be protecting our data and preventing hacks. How do these breaches actually occur?
0: The most common way that companies are breached is by criminals, by criminal groups of hackers who break into a company's IT systems, either by finding a weak link within the company's protective apparatus or or by coming in via third parties, by its suppliers, etc. So that's the most common cause. Um, curiously, the second most common and easiest way for hackers to get in is via individuals. The sort of people, um, I mean, I don't know, in a recent book that came out, they call him Poor Dave, right? This is the guy that basically kind of sits there and responds to every phishing email and becomes an extraordinary vulnerability to the company, and so this person actually is responsible, this type of person who, who just doesn't understand, doesn't even have a sense of a potential danger that may be lurking in his emails or whatever. That's the second biggest source of weakness at the moment.
1: Now, we've seen in the case of oil spills that companies modify their safety regulations and they really clean their act up. What can companies that handle sensitive data learn from the oil companies?
0: I think the classic example here is Exxon Valdez, that oil spill in 1989, and that caused a whole change to the way that the oil industry was regulated in the US and to ExxonMobil. So the um, oil industry in the US became essential, mandatory, that they use double-hulled ships rather than single-hulled ships, because when Exxon Valdez hit the rocks, it only had a single hull, and that made it much more likely that there was going to be a devastating leak. Um, But also, It really had an effect on Exxon. Uh, It caused a change in the culture of the company. The company became obsessed with safety from the individual right up to the top and uh, you know sometimes these were absurd these changes there was uh, there were injunctions against leaving your office desk open in case someone might bump into it you know that sort of thing um, but at the end of the day the company now has a safety first culture that is incredibly strong so the data companies what could they learn from that well first of all they can learn the point of about the individual. They can learn that it's really important to inculcate a safety culture from the bottom up. You know, in oil companies, they have requirements that their individual employees just hold on to handrails when they're walking up the stairs in the office. Now, that sounds a bit ridiculous, but it's not. It actually sends the message to all employees that safety is important. You need something like that in the data industry. You also need the data industry to speak out more publicly about data breaches and about what it's doing about them. So when you listen to an oil company give its earnings results, for example, or its annual report, the first thing that they talk about is their safety record. You don't hear that so much from internet firms. They tend to treat uh, data breaches, like kind of the equivalent of gonorrhea or whatever, they just don't want to talk about them in public. But it's very important to share information about best practice. And uh, there's a lot more to do in that regard. And I guess the third thing that's very important for all companies to acknowledge is the fact that a big data breach could be life threatening. You know, if you think of an oil spill, like BP's Deepwater Horizon disaster, you can see that that almost brought down uh, one of Britain's biggest oil companies. And the same thing could easily happen with um, a big company. So this isn't just a problem for the, uh, the companies that you may think of, the Facebooks and the um, Googles that handle vast quantities of our data. One has to remember that all companies these days have a lot of data. For all of them, it's very important. And a breach of data for any company, not just the internet giants, is potentially ruinous um, in the worst case scenario.
1: Do you think governments need to do more to make sure people's data is handled securely?
0: Yes. I mean, clearly, the companies should bear in mind that protecting data is in their self-interest. Their reputations are at risk of being ruined by a big data breach. But there is certainly a lot that regulators can do in order to encourage companies to clean up their acts. One of the most important things is to encourage companies to put a real value on the data that they handle. And so that means, for example, imposing fines for data breaches that are really prohibitive, that make a company think this data, which until now I've considered to be an asset, is actually a potentially a very big and very damaging liability. So Capital One, which was a US bank that was very recently breached, it set aside the equivalent of about $3 per victim for kind of remediation and cleanup costs and whatever. But the most recent estimates is that companies should be paying about $1,000 per victim in fines so that they really take this issue seriously from the board level. On down.
1: Henry Tricks, thank you very much.
0: Thank you, Rachana.
4: Are you ready to enhance your future in tech? Then it's time to make your move to the UK, the nation that has more tech unicorns than France, Germany, and Sweden combined. The nation that was third in the world to have a one trillion dollar tech sector valuation. The nation, where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.
1: And finally, boohoo.com is a collection of online fashion brands known for very energetic advertising and PVC fluorescent skimpy clothing. Its fastest growing brand, Pretty Little Thing, sponsors one of Britain's most popular TV shows of the year, Love Island. And they're firmly at the front of the Instagram influencer culture. Tamsin Booth, The Economist's Britain business editor, is writing about what's
2: made the fashion brand so successful. Tamsin, what is Boohoo and why are we hearing about them now? Boohoo was founded in Manchester in 2006 by Mahmoud Kamani, a clothing entrepreneur, and Carol Kane, who had lots of kind of creative input into the firm. And Carol told me that at the beginning, it was basically her, Mahmood, and a photographer, and the model was a girlfriend of Mahmoud's 18 year old son. Um, and now it's got 856 million pounds of revenue, and is growing at kind of vast rates sort of 30 to 50 percent a year. And you really know that they've burst onto the national consciousness because they've become a favourite target of the Daily Mail. You're getting a string of stories about, um, you know, wrap dresses that create massive wardrobe malfunctions when you when you try and get into them. Other dresses that you can't even get into at all. There was one um, one story about a dead goldfish that ended up in some packaging and it's suddenly just broken into the news um in particular because last week they said they would buy Karen Millen and Coast two high street brands and they're taking them online um they bought them for 18 million and as part of that they're shutting the high street stores but it's brought a lot a lot more attention on the company and what's unusual about their business model? The first thing is that it's it's really fast fashion. I mean, like other firms, it's fast fashion, but it's taken to an extreme. So they're incredibly responsive to their customers, sort of young women, mostly 18 to 25 year olds. And as soon as some trend hits the catwalk, they can make as few as 300 items in just a couple of weeks and ship it out to people. And instead of telling people what to wear by dressing up mannequins in windows and bricks and mortar store, they're just listening to what people want and sending stuff out super super quickly. They manufacture mostly in the UK, which is unusual out of Leicester. They've really embraced the body positive movement. So making fashion, you know, high fashion in large sizes around sort of up to size twenty. And they believe that basically young people don't have the kind of conditioning to think that you've got to be a size 10 or a US size 6 to be perfect. They make fashion for everyone. They've really pioneered the use of influencers and celebrities to sell clothes instead of of your usual models that you see in fashion magazines. They use over 8,000 influencers from the celebrity level with millions of followers right down to micro-influencers that they don't actually pay to post on social media. They just give them things to wear and get them involved in, um, in events and it's all proved incredibly effective and Pretty Little Thing, as you mentioned, is, is all over Love Island.
1: You mentioned the acquisitions. They've also run into a
2: bit of trouble on workers' pay. How serious is that? Yes, it's interesting to watch the company growing. I mean, they've got incredible ambitions. They basically want to be an online British Inditex, the Spanish owner of Zara that has about 23 billion euros of revenues. They want to build a company of that scale and they're expanding globally into the US and Europe. And so as part of that growth, what you're seeing is a company growing from its origins with quite a sort of swashbuckling kind of culture, very close to its roots, and you're seeing it mature. So it is true that they have been criticised by Parliament's Environmental Audit Committee over sort of environmental impact and social impact. It's true that if you're making a dress, um, if you're selling a dress for £4, I mean their prices are incredibly low... Um, you you know, you ha- obviously have to make it for less than that. And so the suspicion is that some of their manufacturing in Leicester may involve workers in their supply chain being paid less than the national minimum wage. So there's been a lot of attention focused on that. And I think the company takes it very much to heart because they really want to support manufacturing in the UK and they're looking into this. For the moment, I think they're determined not to um, enter into kind of box ticking exercises. And they're a little bit resistant to change So their warehouse workers, for instance, aren't unionised despite calls for them to be allowed to do that. I think as the company grows and matures, it probably will get better at dealing with these sorts of problems. Um, And it will have to take account of... Um, of concern around sustainability of fast fashion. Obviously, a lot of fast fashion clothing goes into landfill eventually. But one thing is true, and certainly will be noticed by the founder and top management there is really very little sign that its customers are paying a lot of attention to the complaints. There has been no sign of a boycott. Tamsin, do you think high street brands should be worried about the rise of Boohoo? I think the fact that they've come in and bought Karen Millen, which has these 30 stores, obviously it's a brand that hasn't been doing terrifically well under its current owner, an Icelandic bank. But the fact that Boohoo has come in and is sacrificing some of the firm's revenues to take it online, I think is, is a very strong signal that the direction of fashion retailing on the high street isn't necessarily a bright one. Tamsin, thank you very much. Thank you. And that's all for this edition of Money Talks. While
1: you're with us, give us a rating on Apple Podcasts. I'm Rachna Shanbho, and in London, this is The Economist.